Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. The Skatacoke tribe is hoping to build some momentum in their fight against the state and the two current tribal casino operators. Governor Malloy and Democratic leaders are bickering about who's going to take the lead in making needed budget cuts. And motor voter legislation might make voting easier for more residents, but that's only if we ever get our number called at the DMV. Those are just a few of the stories we'll tackle today in the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, it's 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me as always is Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello once again, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankoski. Also, here's Mark Pazniokas. He's Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mayor. Hello, Paz. Good morning. And Christine Stewart is editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. Hello once again, Christine. Good morning. We're going to start with a mystery, and this is sort of an interesting story that both Paz and Christine have been covering. It has to do with the State Elections Enforcement Commission being surprised to find a provision added to campaign finance legislation. No one's exactly uh, coming forward to say, I'm behind this. So take us through this mystery, Paz. I'll start with you, and let's just try to figure out what exactly is happening here. Sure. The State Elections Enforcement Commission uh, proposed legislation that would allow for greater disclosure of dark money, the sources of independent expenditures. And when the bill was drafted, there was a section in there that they didn't ask for. And it was a section that is uh, very technical, uh, very subtle, but people at the commission – the way they interpret it is that it would create a big loophole in state finance law. Specifically, it addresses the interaction between state and federal campaign finance law, and that is a major issue in ongoing litigation between the commission and the state Democratic Party and the campaign of Governor Malloy. So it was, where did this come from? And I played my Beautiful role in asking people, knowing the answer would be, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> so, and this this has, this happens from time to time. Um, for for those of your listeners steeped in Catholic dogma and familiar with the concept of the Immaculate Conception, <laughs> this happens at the Connecticut State Capitol more than you would think. Uh, um, okay. there, there are no camels or wise men, but. Uh, <laughs> Things just sort of burst upon the scene. And Kino. No one Remember Kino? Yeah. Kino, no, exactly. No, yeah. Five years ago, there was a, a – in a in a budget bill, about this time of year, maybe a month later, there was a provision that suddenly magically appeared that would have taken control of the state's public financing of campaigns from the nonpartisan Elections Enforcement Commission and handed it to the elected office of the secretary of the state. Same thing. It was – I don't know where it came from. So, look, and we could spend the whole show, Christine, just coming up with uh, examples of this in all sorts of legislation. But this one, given the fact that there is this ongoing lawsuit, given the fact that this has directly to do with Democrats, state parties, the Malloy administration, 
what else should we be knowing about this? Yeah. So, I mean, the explanation that we've been given is that it was um, just a drafting error. And, and I'm not quite sure that you I can use that dra- all the time, by the way. Draft. Drafting errors. That's, that's what, anytime I make a mistake. Entire sections, you know, Section 5 and Section 9 in this legislation to basically change how state parties operate. I don't understand how that is some sort of drafting error. So, you know, uh, I'm skeptical. But, you know, as as Mark said, we don't really have an answer still. But before I hear from Colin, though, on this, I mean, so there's this drafting error that has found. Is it now revised? I mean, is the legislation that the State Elections Enforcement Commission wanted to write actually the legislation that the, the people are considering now? Well, so the General Administration and Elections Committee will have to make that decision um, whether they want to rewrite the legislation and pass, you know, a revised version of this legislation. Uh, You know, it's unclear at the moment whether they're going to do that or they're just going to scrap it. Oh, I think it's pretty clear that that revision is going to disappear. These things generally don't survive in the daylight. Once light is shined upon them, they, they, they wither and go away. The question is, will the underlying bill, which is kind of an interesting bill to provide better dis- better disclosure, will that go by the wayside as well? Uh, Kalila Brandine just tweets at us, listening to Paz outline this controversy is like listening to a Hardy Boys mystery on the radio. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thank you. Hardy Boys, I forgot about them. Golly. Colin, <laughs> Colin, what's your take? Well, I mean, obviously, there, there should be basically a, a rule anyway, if it's, uh, either formal or informal, that when language appears in a bill and nobody claims Authorship, it should come out immediately, right? I mean, uh, every committee chairman should just sign up for that, just to agree agree to that. Uh, that's number one. Um, to me, the larger question is, and this is something we've talked a lot about on the wheelhouse in the past, and I got in a lot of trouble last year writing a column sort of saying, you know, really, this all kind of tracks back to our citizen election program. And, and so our citizen election program, which provides grants to politicians so that they can run for office, uh, and, it, and it, in exchange for restrictions on other kinds of money that they formerly were able to get. And it turns out the only part of this program that they believe in is the part where they get free money. All of the restrictions they have attempted to chip away at in every way possible, every single, <laughs> every single way in which the other kind of money was taken off the table, they've fought tooth, tooth and nail to get back on their dinner plate. And, and this looks just like more of it. I mean, they, they've done it over and over again to a point where what I got in trouble for was suggesting, you know, particularly in a budget crisis like the one where we're having now, we're going to be talking about this later, where really afflicted and vulnerable populations are going to be going without state services, going without necessary money. I'm starting to wonder whether it makes sense to give these people millions of dollars in campaign grants when they don't believe in this system anyway. The only reason to do it is if you subscribe to the restrictive portion of it. And if you don't, Let's just forget about this program. We can use that money for other stuff. To, to be fair, when you uh, you know got a lot of criticism about what you'd written and what you'd said about this, you claimed it was a drafting error, and that does no, happen periodically. Yeah, no, I, I actually don't even really know who put that language <laughs> in my column. I, 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 a couple quick things, and to anybody who hasn't cl- closely followed this stuff over the years, the, the, the real issue is the federal rules allow state contractors to give money to campaigns. State law says no, and it's how the, these two f- sources of money mix. And that's really what Colin is talking about. It undermines the basic tenor, uh, tenant of the citizens' election program. Um, I don't know if it's worth the money, but I will say public financing of campaigns uh, you know, still has a demonstrably uh, salutary effect on how the legislature works. 
I'm not sure on statewide campaigns anymore. What we saw last time, there was so much outside money. It really equaled the public money that went in. I think there's a, a really good debate about did the state of Connecticut get what it's paid for. At the legislative level, it's not my place to say if it's worth it, but I will say it has made a difference. It has changed the relationship between legislators and lobbyists, and that, that I think everybody agrees is a healthy thing. Uh, you know, I guess we're going to find out what uh, the judge is going to decide in this case. Um, I want to say I counted like 96 days or something like that. The judge has about 120 days 120. to make a decision. So I guess we'll find out probably in another 30 days or so. Whether... And, and the issue is compelling a subpoena. The, the right. commission wants to subpoena records of the state party. The state party has resisted this, and that's what's before the judge right now. And the issue is this interaction of state and federal campaign law. The state party has basically said federal law preempts, but out. And it's it really if if a judge decides that it will really undermine state elections enforcement. I mean, and the subtext to this also is and so Jody Rowell really was the leader in saying post Roland scandals, we really ought to keep contractor money and lobbyist money out of this process. We ought to create a process, a set of laws where the contractor money and, and contractors with the state and, and lobbyist money gets kept out. And it was aimed at solving the prob- one of the problems that came out of the Roland administration. Yeah, you don't want sort of any kind of pay for play type system. So uh, a court decision, not Citizens United, but another court decision, essentially struck down the lobbyist part of that. So it's harder to keep, uh, much harder to keep lobbyist money out. Um, you can restrict lobbyists, but you can't ban their. You can't ban them. But the contractors were that they were the one group of dogs who were still kept outside the screen door. And this case that Paz and Christine are talking about is is the way in which that contractor money, the one kind of money we still had somehow or other managed to ban from our political process, managed to get pumped back in it through this mechanism that the state Democratic Party used. You know, Evan just sent us a tweet, Christine, says, so then let's fight to make uh, the citizens election program better, not abandon all hope for countering special interest money. I think to, to Colin's point, we, we have created a program mm-hmm. that the state in one way or another is rolling back through changes to law, through things like what's happening around this lawsuit. It, you know, Yes, Evan wants to make it stronger. Do you see any will at the state capitol to say, let's really sit down and talk about how we can make citizens election program better when there's all this other stuff, including massive budget deficits that we have to deal with? Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's so much I, I think that when they proposed cutting the funds to the citizens' election program, I think the outcry was swift, and I think lawmakers said, "Hey, no, the, this you know this program is, is working." Um, so I think that was a pretty strong statement. I don't know if there's any sort of focus on it um, this legislative session. And I, I don't really seriously. Uh, first of all, I don't think it can be rolled back. You cannot take free money away from lawmakers because they have to make the law <laughs> to take that away from them, and they're not going to do that. Yeah. But So I'm saying this more rhetorically, but the truth is, to Evan's point, all they've ever done so far is weaken it. That's all they've ever done. Since it's been enacted, that's been the entire trend. So it's not like we have a functioning law and maybe we could make it a little stronger. They've just been chipping away at it every single way that they possibly could. It's cynical and it's disgusting. Well, and of course, the defense they put up is... We, we need a way to defend ourselves against independent expenditures that are now unlimited thanks to the Citizen United decision. 
The reality, though, has been the Connecticut General Assembly has not been a particularly attractive target for these big national groups. One of the reasons is that the Connecticut General Assembly does not draw uh, congressional districts. And in other parts of the country, that was really the prize for some of these conservative groups. They wanted to make – like in Texas, they swung – I think it was something like 10 or 11 congressional districts based on how the legislature redrew the map. We only have five House seats. It may go down to four after 2020. But but the, in any event, we have a bipartisan process to do uh, the congressional maps. So that that's not on the table. It does make the state less attractive. It doesn't mean there won't be you know a billionaire one day who says, hey, I want to try to swing the, the state Senate. Well, from what I've been reading, all the billionaires are leaving anyway. Right. This is, they're yeah, all just... Actually, the, the billionaire who did contribute outside money to <laughs> Connecticut campaigns that kind of prompted lawmakers to be aware of this um, has moved to Florida. He's Thomas Petter, right? yes. yes. Yeah, and so, so, so there you go. We're talking with Christine Stewart and, and Mark Pazniokas and, and Colin McEnroe. Let's turn to the state budget. Uh, Governor Malloy sent a letter to legislative leaders yesterday calling on them to submit ideas to close this year's Budget gap. He gave an interview to NBC Connecticut during which he accused lawmakers of not stepping up to the plate on a number of key issues, including state budget cuts. The decisions are going to have to be made, but we're putting it in context. We've got to find $220 million before we send a whole lot of checks out. Let's put everything on a piece of paper and decide whether there's will to make the kinds of changes that I know have to be made. And we got uh, back and forth. Uh, the head of the Senate, Martin Looney, is saying, you know, the governor, you got to trust us to make these cuts. We're going to do a good job ourselves. I mean, uh, there's a lot of bickering over who's essentially in charge of this cutting process, Christine. Is that is that how I should be reading it? Well, no. OK, basically, we've reached the point where uh, the governor has to submit a deficit mitigation plan to the legislature. And, and the governor is saying, hey, look, lawmakers, I'm asking you for some suggestions before I even do that. So I, I'm trying to pretend to be friendly uh, in this process, but um, really, I don't think that. <laughs> Is that what that looks like? <laughs> I'm trying to pretend to be friendly here. <laughs> I'm trying to pretend I care about what you, um, you know, you you want to cut, but uh, I think he's going to go forward and, and cut what he wants to cut anyway. <clears throat> On Friday, there was an extraordinary exchange between the House Speaker Brendan Sharkey and Malloy's staff. Now, Malloy was still out of state at that point. Sharkey made um, a correct and, in my view, a reasonable criticism of the governor when it, you know, when it came to this Yukon contract, which has now become the symbol. <laughs> it's become it's really become this outsized symbol of uh, is the legislature willing to make hard cuts or not? This has to do with uh, raises. This has to do with raises professional for non non teaching staff. So so the Yukon trustees and the the union put forward a contract uh, to the legislature with raises. Um, Sharkey, you know, Malloy said, hey, the the legislature needs to step up and reject this. And Sharkey, the speaker, pointed out correctly that the governor has a seat at the table. These are all his appointees on the board of trustees. And in fact, the governor is the ex officio president of that board. So in February, when the trustees voted on this proposed contract, Sharkey said, where was Malloy then? Not the craziest criticism. And Sharkey, you know, he he was very respectful and he kept his tone civil. Um, The governor's office, which has been frustrated, you know, they've had this sense of they have not controlled the message on budgeting. Um, You know, I'm not sure messaging is 
the biggest problem with the budget right <laughs> I now. Think that's fair to say. I think but, that's pretty fair to say. But but you know, Mark Bergman, um, within minutes, um, I mean, and they they begged me not to post a story right away without their chance to respond, and they came back with this very hard hitting. Uh, response saying that Sharkey's just trying to deflect attention from his own inability to control his caucus. And so a couple thoughts on that. I mean, Sharkey made his criticisms after emerging from a House Democratic caucus. Anybody who's interested in how to govern would pay attention to that fact and interpret that as the speaker coming out and channeling <laughs> the resentment and the feelings of his caucus towards the governor on that. So, so that's the um, that's the interpersonal atmosphere at the Capitol right now. You know, they all they all met uh, yesterday. People seem to be adopting a more reasonable tone, but you know, I think we're going to see that for the rest of the session. The legislature is trying to run for re-election. There's a lot of angst among Democrats. Malloy's not on the ballot, and you have that dynamic as well. Governor Malloy has been on the job enough so that he, he's now discovered which things he doesn't like doing. And one of the things he doesn't like doing is being the guy who issues a whole bunch of cuts in order to balance the budget. It's one of his least favorite parts of the job. And it, it's a it's a shuffleboard disc that he has tried to shove towards the legislature as much as possible. Um, so, I mean, that's some of what you're seeing here. But the thing that he's talking about, which at least sounds really good, is the thing that we all wish and hope would happen, which is that a budget, particularly a budget in a really lean, difficult year, would be looked at in terms of the, the merits of the cuts, the merits of the things worth proposing, as opposed to the ability of various interest groups uh, and stakeholders to get the ear either the governor or the legislative leaders, how good are your lobbyists, uh, those kinds of things. And I, and I think it's sort of everybody's grand suspicion that that latter set of consideration trumps merit an awful lot of the time. That And, and, and so what the governor is paying lip service to anyway, I'm not really sure he subscribes to it, and I'm not really sure even if he did that he would be capable of creating an environment where it would get debated that way is let's look at everything. And so, yeah, so we always do the hospital payments this way. Well, you know, I mean, do we do them this way because this is the best thing to do with our money and the best way to deliver that money, or do we do it because they've got good lobbyists or, or that it just sort of become a, an accepted practice? Let's look at everything on that basis. I think that's what he means when he says, let's write everything down on a piece of paper. But, 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 well, at the ahead. same time, there's only, you know, three quarters. We're, we're done with three quarters of the fiscal yeah. year, so there is very little left to cut in this budget. Yeah, right. done with three quarters of the fiscal year. We still are running a deficit in this fiscal year. And we're looking at, uh, at out-year num- deficits that are huge. A number that may grow. It's it's $266 yes. million right now, and people expect after the April tax receipts come in that it's not going to get better. But but so, so, Colin, you say you know the governor has not wanted this to necessarily be on his lap. He's the guy who has to take credit for the cuts. You, you mentioned, though, the hospitals. This is one thing he's come – I mean I, well, five different times he's come on my program and said, the hospitals, maybe we could cut. I mean, and once again, we're talking about $140 million to, of payments to the hospitals. Brendan Sharkey and Martin Looney say that is unacceptable. And the governor's like, no, let's start with the hospitals. Yeah, and I'm going to defer to Paz and Christine on this a little bit in terms of of the merits. I mean, one of the things that makes it harder for legislators to do this is that that hospitals are in towns. Hospitals are in districts. So if, in fact, your hospital isn't getting its money, uh, you hear about it in a way probably that that the governor doesn't. That's part of it. But there are a whole other range of considerations. And I can't really say that I have a good enough grasp of this issue to know whether the hospitals are the right target. Christine? No, I, I just say that, you know, um, it is some of this money is Medicaid. And so some of the money 
isn't necessarily from the taxing of the hospitals and does need to be passed through to the hospitals. Well, the Medicaid money is going to be passed through, but it it is this tax that they passed years ago with the idea it would be almost a gimmick to leverage more Medicaid leverage money and they were going to return yeah. it. But that, that gets into the weeds. There are two classes of hospitals. There are the small community hospitals that are really financially struggling and legislators have spoken out most strongly there. The legislature really has not said we got to cover all the hospital payments And one of the reasons the legislature reacted with such uh, annoyance at the governor is they thought they had this hashed out in December in special session. You know, this is the case of 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 they they, had a deal. They had a deal. deal. And the governor and and so it's not just that the governor did something they disagree with. The governor did something they disagree with and they thought they had an agreement. But but to to be fair, I mean, they had a deal in December. It doesn't matter when they had a deal. Um, since December, we've had a couple of different revisions to this year's budget deficit. I mean, the fact is, Christine, is that the ball is moving all the time. The state doesn't have the money to pay its bills. Yeah, maybe we had a deal to protect hospital payments back in December, but now it's March of 2016, and we're facing a bigger deficit all the time. Got to cut somewhere, don't we? That's what the governor says. Right, and, th- and that's exactly what the governor says. So, you know, you've got a 200 200- million dollar 266 million dollar deficit and the hospital payments 140 million of that you know and, it's the, and it's the only have, big pool of money the only that big they pool can, money yeah. they can cut yeah, yeah. at this time in the as christine yeah. pointed out we're late in the fiscal year these are one of the big payments that haven't gone out the door yet so that's why they say let's do this and that's why colin just just to my point you know deal schmeal i mean <laughs> yeah we have deals but we got to actually have a budget that that balances and we seem to not have the money to cover our bills yeah i mean once again this is i, I wish i had a real dispositive thing to say about this as opposed to running my thumb down the knife's edge, edge of it on the one hand I think Pastor Christine would say that if, in fact, you can't bargain in good faith with one another, if you can't reach accords that you then stick to, it makes it really difficult for the governor's office and the legislature to function in the future. On the other hand, your point's a good one, too, which is that many of the terms which dictated this deal have altered so drastically as to transform the landscape. And I I probably need the last thing. The, The bigger picture here is the governor is trying to reset expectations about what state government can afford. And when you look at these town hall meetings he's gone to, the messaging has been startling different. Uh, it, you know, he is now saying Connecticut's glass is half empty. He's always been the guy who said it's half full. It's on the rise. At one of these meetings, he said something that was startling to me. And I, and I don't mean his confession that he's imperfect. Uh, I'm talking about his – he pointed out that Yes, the private sector has recovered 100 percent of the jobs lost in the recession. But now he's saying, but they're lower wage jobs. They're producing less money and Connecticut must adjust and must adjust, if not in a permanent fashion, then in a long term fashion about what we can afford. So when we come back from a break, we're going to be talking about another issue that nominally has to do with jobs, but it also has to do with tribal sovereignty a new casino in Connecticut, and it involves Joe Lieberman. Oh, Colin will love to talk about this. We're talking in the wheelhouse today with Colin McEnroe, with Christine Stewart of ctnewsjunkie.com. You just heard from Mark Pazniokas of the Connecticut Mirror. We'll be right back where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's Wednesday, so it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined today by Christine Stort, who is the editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. Mark Pazniokas is the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. And our own Colin McEnroe. What's coming up on your show this afternoon at 1 today, Colin? We've, we've been talking about this uh, show for uh, quite a while, that there is an awful lot of scholarly research, some of it scientific, some of it in the humanities, that sits behind paywalls, usually the so-called JSTOR paywall. And a lot of it is taxpayer-funded, too, so it's kind of like, why can't we read it? <laughs> um, there have been some new efforts to kind of get around those paywalls, uh, and they've created some solutions and some new problems. Interesting uh, conversation with Colin McEnroe this afternoon at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe Show. Let's turn to former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman, who has been hired as lead attorney for the Scaticoke Tribal Nation. Now, we've been hearing about the Scaticoke Tribal Nation for years. It's a little tiny reservation, and it's out in Kent. It's right uh, up against the New York border and right along the Housatonic River. Um, they have been trying for federal recognition for quite some time. The state of Connecticut's fought pretty hard to make sure they don't get that uh, federal recognition. They want to get into the casino business. Meanwhile, the state has essentially come into a deal with the two existing tribal nations that have existing tribal casinos to build a third casino, the one that would, I assume, Colin, catch all of these gamblers who are moving through the I-91 corridor, through Hartford up to Springfield, to the new MGM Springfield Casino that's being built. That's where this new casino is supposed to be. MGM has filed suit against our state, saying that it's not uh, a fair deal what the state has put forward. Now the Scattercokes are joining this, and Joe Lieberman's working with them. Oh, my goodness, there's so many things that are right in your wheelhouse, Colin, here. <laughs> and former House Speaker uh, Jim Amon, too. Uh, so... It's sort of like of mice and men or something. But um, okay, so the, yeah, there's so many ways to look at this. Uh, <laughs> there's so many, so many things to look. First of all, I think one thing, maybe the place we should begin by, is by saying that the the process of federal tribal recognition bears almost no resemblance to reality, right? Yes. I mean, there pretty clearly is something called the Scaticote tribe. There are arguably two different ones that don't recognize each other's authority. They've been recognized by the state for decades. Yeah, and, and they were recognized by the federal government for like a hiccup, I think back in 04 or 05. Yes. The minute that happened, led by their arch enemy, Dick Blumenthal, uh, the leaders of Connecticut rose up and beat down their recognition, their federal recognition. And, and you know, this either happens because... Uh, the leaders of Connecticut, including our congressional delegation, are concerned about rampant gambling uh, um, and casino expansion in Connecticut or because, in fact, the Mohicans and the Mashantuckets uh, have got this thing wired up so well that the political leadership joins them in beating back rivals. So y- you pick your own version of that. But one thing they didn't have was a friend in Joe Lieberman. Joe Lieberman would have been part of that cohort running up to the BIA or whoever they had to go to to knock down uh, Scatico uh, federal rec- recognition. So it is interesting. I mean, it's an old technique. We could probably think of 20 examples. Hire one of your old enemies uh, to be your new friend. Yeah, and, and some of the money to hire the new enemy – uh, the old enemy to be your new friend is MGM, who is, is bankrolling this casino up in Springfield because they want to stop said casino. So that's an interesting wrinkle, too, Pass. <laughs> Some of the money? <laughs> well, a majority of the money? All the money? Okay, the money. MGM, we're, you know, we're focused on, right, quite rightly, on Joe Lieberman signing up and Jim Amon, the former Speaker of the Connecticut House. But let's not forget Eric Holder, the former Attorney General of the United States. He also was hired by MGM uh, directly not to not to work with uh, the Scatacotes who are acting, I think, can 
be fairly described as something of a beard uh, with with MG, for MGM in this fight. And Roy Ochigroso, the governor's close advisor, he went back to his old firm, Global Strategy, and they also are on the payroll of MGM right now. Um, the thing we should all remember, though, is they are fighting viciously over something that has very little chance of, of really ever happening. Um, nobody has answered the questions that the attorney general, our attorney general, George Epson, our raised, current attorney general. Yes, yes. Current. Yes. raised a year ago about the significant legal problems in allowing an expansion of casinos off tribal land. So, so you got to keep that in mind, that all that they're really fighting over is kind of a fig leaf of a law that allowed the Mohegans and the Pequots to go out and, and try to get support in local communities so they can come back to the General Assembly and say, hey, we have a local, a willing local partner. Will you let us build but, it? Well, I, and that willing local partner, the only problem is the Scattercooks are saying a hand-picked a partner. The, the, the problem they see is the states getting into bed with these tribes and saying, you're the only ones. There's a lot of casino developers who might want to get into this business of building a third casino, but we've chosen to. Yeah, but it's also not completely in bed yet um, with with these two tribes that were approved to go forward to find a town. So there's a shell bill called an act concerning gaming. And this act concerning gaming um, really right now talks about being able to set up some bingo parlors. Um, but it's thought to be, you know, possibly the vehicle to go forward to um, the legislature needs to approve legislation in, in order for these tribes to actually go forward and build a casino. But we've, we've heard we've heard that there's a couple towns that are out of the running, a few towns still in the running. Among those towns that are still in the running is the troubled city of Hartford, which is facing its own budget uh, budget deficits. Our own Jeff Cohen sits down and talks to the new mayor, Luke Bronin, who's always been like, nah, casino, not so much. And the last time Jeff talked to Luke, he's like, well, I don't know. I mean, if they want to build a casino here. <laughs> and so now all of a sudden there's, I mean, yes, Paz, you're right. It might not be a, a, a realistic possibility, but the fact is we're spending an awful lot of money to do it. Uh, a city like Hartford saying, well, I mean, well, maybe. And M- MGM, you know, their goal is they don't want anything built Hartford North. So they're saying, you know what, Connecticut, you got a great idea, the idea of expanding gambling. But really look at Fairfield County because that's underserved. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, in MGM, they need the Scatacotes in this because – um, MGM is barred from really building a casino in northern Connecticut because their deal with Massachusetts, there is exclusivity. There is a zone where they cannot build. So the Attorney General's Office of Connecticut has said, BS, you've got no way to build what you say you're being disadvantaged from proposing. So you have that. And, of course, we all have to remember that that one of the underlying issues here is the state can't throw out open competition for third casino because the two tribes that are operating the two casinos have exclusivity on slots and that the revenue to the state has been dwindling, but it's still a couple hundred million dollars. And if they allow a non, you know, Mohegan, somebody other than Mohegans and the Pequots to build a third casino, two hundred million goes away in an instant. Yep. So this is under debated, right? This is this is a whole issue that's under debated. I mean, uh, it, it, it. I mean, I'd love to know what say Governor Weicker thinks about it, <laughs> because obviously, what we thought we under what we understood the nature of casino gambling uh, in Connecticut to be at the time this arrangement was approved as a result of a Supreme Court state Supreme Court decision. 
um, was it would stay on the reservations. So whatever is going to happen, it's a radical departure from our settled understanding of what this situation was. And given that, I'd say it's an underdebated question. It's one in which really ultimately there, there should be a broader, longer debate with a lot more public input than there has been. This is a Band-Aid this is, I mean, it's being represented as a Band-Aid and being used as a Band-Aid. But in some ways, at the level of policy, it's much bigger than that. Um, now, we started that conversation with Joe Lieberman. And, and we're going to continue, actually, with Joe Lieberman. And it has a tie to all this as well. Um, last night, we saw in the primaries big wins for Donald Trump in Michigan and Mississippi. Um, now, Joe Lieberman showed up last October uh, introducing Trump at a summit hosted by a group called No Labels. This is a nonpartisan political group that Lieberman co-chairs and he's been working uh, with for some time. Let's listen to a little bit of his introduction of Donald Trump from October. Many people obviously see Donald Trump as the best vehicle uh, to express the most common emotions of this intense and unusual campaign, which are disappointment, disdain, and anger toward the status quo in Washington. Those same emotions and opinions are exactly what led to the creation of No Labels. But as you know, No Labels is not a campaign for a candidate. We are a national campaign for an idea, which is to make America's government work for the people of America. OK, so then right after that, Donald Trump comes up and gives a, a Donald Trump speech uh, in, in front of this group. Uh, there's a lot of interesting connecting facts in all this, Colin. Yeah, obviously, uh, Donald Trump. I mean, we were saying earlier uh, in the conversation that um, there's no particular reason. Some people would say that the Mashantuckets and the Mohegans have to be the casino operators in this new extra reservation casino. Lots of other casino operators uh, might want to bid on that. Maybe it should be thrown open to everybody. Of course, the last time something like that happened, Donald Trump came in and questioned the authenticity of the Mashantuckets. He said they don't like look like Indians to me. He was basically saying that they looked black and they looked like African-Americans to him. Uh, so, yes, that's that's his contribution to the debate here. I, here, I'm the person who dug up this clip. Uh, last night I had a choice. I had two episodes of The Walking Dead DVR'd, or I could think about Joe Lieberman. It's basically the same thing. You know, it's just something that won't die. <laughs> something, something, wah, that wants to wah, eat, <laughs> something that wants to eat your brains. And so, I mean, and it is a little disturbing. This was in October, and maybe he would revise his sentiments now when the – the white nativist aspect of the Trump's insurgency is more clear than it was then, although it wasn't exactly a mystery at that time. Uh, but but it does raise – I mean, you know, I've, yeah, I have this lifelong obsession with Joe Lieberman. And when I first met him, he struck me as the guy with really immutable morals, the guy who, whose morals were really rooted in his very strong religious belief. And he's morphed over time to a guy whose ethics are so situational, so relativistic, and so kind of up for grabs that, yeah, you know, I mean, Donald Trump, he looks okay. Well, I, I will say, Paz, I mean, one way to describe Donald Trump is no labels. I mean, I think that that's it's fair to say that he doesn't oh, I fit. Think of I can th- I, I, <laughs> I just said one way. <laughs> Baz. I mean, Lieberman's group, no labels. Groups like that never go anywhere because American politics tends to be built around personalities is more than ideas. You need a personality to embody the idea or the mood and, you know, commentators who have followed this far more closely than I uh, have concluded that, gee, Donald Trump seems to 
have captured the, the zeitgeist in, in some way. Um, so yeah, Joe, I'm, I'll let, I'll leave I'll leave Joe to call. And I I did cover the 2006 Senate race in in which you know I think Joe and Colin were officially divorced during that race. And I yeah. believe I actually used Colin in in one of those stories I wrote because uh, it was of a of a confrontation that Colin had with Joe on a on another radio station. <laughs> <laughs> a radio station that we will not name here. No. Uh, they do talk a lot, uh, a lot about Donald Trump on that radio station, though, I, I, I must say. Uh, Mark Pazniokas is Capitol Bureau Chief of the Connecticut Mirror. Christine Stortz here. She's editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. When we come back from our break, is it time for Connecticut to adopt a motor voter law? There's also a few other things happening at the Capitol we'd like to talk about in the wheelhouse. Our weekly news roundtable. Hope you can join us. It's coming up right after this. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, in his new documentary, Connecticut journalism professor and columnist Frank Harris spotlights what is inarguably one of the most controversial words in America. We're going to take a look at the N-word, a bit about the history and uh, some of the current context with Frank Harris and some other guests. That's tomorrow's program, Where We Live. Today in the program, we are talking, uh, well, in the wheelhouse about uh, state politics and news with Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, Christine Stewart, the editor of ctnewsjunkie.com, and Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Now, Secretary of State Denise Merrill has been championing a new system of automatic voter registration. Uh, she says a, a type of a motor voter law would uh, make government more efficient. It would save money. It's good customer service. We've talked a lot, Colin, about uh, trying to open up uh, voting to more people, different ways in which this this can happen. The only problem that some people see is this would be tied into the workings of the state DMV, which has proven itself to not necessarily be right now the most efficient uh, efficient of state government uh, agencies. Maybe not the great, greatest timing uh, right now is to ask <laughs> DMV to do something new. So uh, first of all, we should say this is a highly political question. And so uh, Democrats tend to think that um, and, and I now tend to think, I've evolved over time on this, that basically you should be registered to vote unless there's some compelling reason you know, not to. So let's, the default should be you have a chance to vote in this country unless there's some real reason. And, of course, Republicans in the South say you shouldn't be able to vote unless you can sing three Pat Boone songs or some real white thing. Um, so, um, you know, so this looks to me like actually pretty good legislation. The question is... Yeah, is DMV incapable of taking on a new task? Or, as Secretary Merrill has argued, is this the perfect time for DMV to do this because they are, in fact, installing a a whole new computer system? This would be the time when the system is the most elastic, most easily patched, uh, that this wouldn't be all that complicated, and it probably will be harder if the system hardens off. Christine? Yeah, no. Uh, so the Registrar of Voters organization is is opposing this. Um, you know, it, it seems that, you know, the argument that they are upgrading the system right now and, and maybe we should be adding this as a question or a choice that you can check off on one of those um, print screens that is in front of you. The, the, the Registrar of Voters don't like this because... Um, they don't think that they're going to get any better information than than they currently get and that it's going to complicate things. And Because the current Registrar of Voter System is really awesome and just yeah, foolproof across the state, <laughs> as, as, as we all know. Right, yeah. Pez? The, the registrars periodically are the ones who get out, open their window and say, kids, get off my lawn. You know, I mean, they have resisted most 
changes, or I shouldn't say most, that's unfair. They've resisted many changes to ease the way. You know, they've resisted same-day voter registration, uh, you know, which allows you to actually register and vote on Election Day, and, and some other things which turned out to be, you know, pretty good ideas. Connecticut right now is one of the worst states in the United States as far as participation in, in registering to vote through the Department of Motor Vehicles. So this is not a crazy thing to look at. Um, it probably will be killed by people just rolling their eyes and saying, DMV, leave them alone. Merrill's argument is, I'm not saying you got to do it right now. Yeah, for God's sakes, fix the computer system and get people registered. But her argument is, there's no reason not to pass the law this year and to put her request basically on their to-do list. Dennis Murphy, who's Malloy's troubleshooter, uh, who's been assigned temporarily to DMV, he testified the other day at the legislature, and he he you know, he just kind of said, "Yeah, it's not a bad idea, but could you just leave me alone?" I mean, he looked like a man whose head was going to explode. <laughs> but we're talking about yeah. you know four hundred, possibly four hundred thousand voters that that Absolutely. making this change can actually get on the voting rolls. Well, that's not nothing, Colin. Yes. Yeah, I think it's a drift in the right direction. I mean, one of the things that I think we would all agree is that there's too much variation in the electoral experience of Connecticut citizens town to town to town to town, right? Yeah. I mean, it just you're dealing with high, highly idiosyncratic people in the form of registrars of voters <laughs> uh, and highly, highly idiosyncratic systems. When you go to vote, the moderator in Old Seabrook may have a completely different understanding of what the ID laws are or rules are from a moderator in Danbury. I mean, it just, there's way too much variation here. So kicking some of this up to the state level, as unwieldy and sometimes dysfunctional as the state level may be, is still probably a good idea. Let's make Connecticut, Connecticut. Let's make it at least pretty standardized how you register. register, And and the more things like that connected to the basic franchise of voting that can be the same, probably the better. Okay, let's turn to something uh, that we've we've seen a few uh, times in the state legislature and is back again this year. Representative Kelly uh, Luxemburg has co-sponsored a bill to eliminate sales tax on baby diapers and feminine hygiene products. This is not the first time it's been introduced, but Christine, we're looking all the time for more money in the state. A bill like this I I would assume would cost the state a little bit of money. Does this have a chance of being successful? You know, I I am not sure about that. This is the second year that um, the elimination of the diaper tax has been on the table, and it's actually the first year to eliminate the sales tax on feminine hygiene products. And um, elimination of feminine hygiene products would cost $3.6 million. Elimination of sales tax on diapers would cost $4.2 million. So, you know, that that's revenue out the door the state wouldn't be collecting. I don't think anybody's falling on their sword for this issue, but I think that they're kind of putting it on the table. Um, it, it is, a, you know, a gender equity issue, I guess I can say, as the only female at this table right now. Well, it's a, it's a gender equity <laughs> but, issue, and, the, and the, there's questions about, you know, we tax some things in the state, we don't tax other things. We tax right. some things one way, we tax other things another way. There's 120 categories of, of things that there are no sales tax on. Well, yeah, and and, uh, and, and so why is there a sales tax on um, on uh, sanitary pads, and there's no sales tax on incontinence pads? They pretty much look the same. They pretty much look the same. <laughs> they and function incontinence the same. Incontinence is gender blind. I just like to say it is. <laughs> Sooner or later, <laughs> pads. I feared my career would reach this moment. That's really all. No, the the legislature. Um, you know, does it have a habit at times when they're faced with, uh, you know, a, a, a claim or an argument of inequality and it costs money 
and they'll say, you're right. So we're going to pass a law to repeal the tax, but not this year. It'll take effect in two years. You know, I'm not saying they're going to do that, but that is one out. The other out, and, and, I th- and listeners, I think you should brace yourselves for a far broader look at how Connecticut's tax structure um, will change in 2017. You know, you, you could see, you're going to see a, a big examination of what should be taxed, what shouldn't be taxed. Should should the sales tax really apply to everything and have a slightly lower rate? Is that fair? Um, you know, economists on the left and right, that, that's one of the few things they've agreed on over the years. But, you know, yeah, Connecticut, you, you get in these weird arguments about what should be taxed and what shouldn't be taxed. In 91, when they did the income tax, before they did it, I'm sorry, but right before they did the income tax, they were, again, rooting around for more money. And they actually had a debate about, okay, food's not taxable, but what about seeds that grow food? When does it become food? Well, Well, and then there was the whole debate over yoga versus Pilates in 2011. Why was one taxed and the other one not taxed? And I'm just going to quickly say my (laughs) wife started a yoga studio last year. And now I'm dealing with state sales tax on yoga as a service. But but look, I mean, not to get all Steve Forbes on this column, but any time that you have 120 different categories of what you can and cannot tax, it just seems ridiculous and it doesn't seem to make much sense currently. And is there just a way to flatten this out and say, my goodness, we need to tax a whole bunch of stuff because we need revenue of the state and just make a different rule for everybody? One one option is to yeah, just get rid of all the carve-outs. Uh, the other option is to at least apply some kind of rationale to them. And to me, and one thing that we haven't said here, I mean, the, the reason that there should be exemptions uh, are to avoid regressive practices. So one thing we haven't said here is that poor people need tampons and diapers just as much as affluent people. Uh, but they would be, they bear the brunt of the t- sales tax disproportionately. So you know if there's a principle worth sticking to and invoking, it probably shouldn't involve yoga and Pilates. It should involve <laughs> necessities that poor people have to go get. And if they have to pay the sales tax, that means they're bearing a disproportionate brunt of it. That's, to me, the only reason to have a carve-out. I think this is the moment to point out that Connecticut this week did arrest a dry cleaner in Avon for failing to collect a surcharge on dry cleaning for environmental purposes. I've never seen that one before. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I think it really is, you know, there's an argument to be made that these things are for medical purposes. Um, you know, as somebody who's going through both both these stages right now <laughs> in life, um, there there is a reason to keep your baby clean and dry and not get a diaper rash. So let's move to a, a last thing here. And, and Colin, we saw this. Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal and New York Senator Chuck Schumer are pushing the FAA to regulate the size of airline seats. Uh, this comes from a press uh, release here. The average width of an airline seat has shrunk from 18 inches to 16.5 inches since the U.S. airline industry was deregulated. Over that same period, legroom for airline passengers has shrunk from 35 inches to 31 inches. Richard Blumenthal is going to do something about how small your airplane seat is. Right. So just to build on something that Christine just said, uh, it's well known that when Richard Blumenthal was delivered himself as a baby, uh, his parents asked the obstetrician, is it a boy or a girl? And the the obstetrician said, it's an attorney general. Uh, And he's always going to be an attorney general. And as a senator, he can't get out of that attorney. So this to me is like kind of attorney. He's still doing that attorney general thing. Now, to tell you the truth, is this a real problem? Yeah, kind of is. 
is. I mean, the airline, uh, the airlines right now are enjoying almost obscenely high profits. Uh, they are they, they are not passing any of those benefits on to the consumer. I'd rather see a big antitrust action because I actually think there's a lot of signs of price fixing, right? Prices should be more competitive. They should be going down. But um, I think this kind of thing is it's it's tempting for Dick Blumenthal to do because it's also very popular. There are very few people who are going to say, oh, no, I really like sitting in those really small seats that get half an inch shorter every year. So, I mean, I would expect that, you know, it'll fly pretty well if you'll pardon that expression. <laughs> As somebody who was stuck in an airport for four days, all I wanted was one of these seats. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you got back. I remember you were stuck in the airport for four days. So long. Well, and, and that's you know, yes. There's many problems with the airlines. Is the size of seats one of them has at least to the level that the federal government should get involved in regulating said size? This conversation proves the brilliance of Dick Blumenthal. Dick Blumenthal lives in this area that that is it's both ludicrous and brilliant and what i mean is he constantly comes up with things that we in the media say what the hell is a us senator talking about uh, gmo salmon that's not even on the market yet right that was one of his press conferences on the other hand as colin just showed yeah this is I mean, this is something that ticks people off so blumenthal and chuck schumer from new york who's also very good at this and oh by the way Who's working with Blumenthal on this? Chuck Schumer. So, I mean, this has been Dick Blumenthal's M.O. his whole career. He, you know, he will push these things that are are very popular, very populist, um, and people will roll their eyes and make fun. But yet he is, as far as I can tell, the only politician in Connecticut right now whose approval rating is in the 60s. But, yeah, but, and, and I, I think it's, it's not a bad – it was not a bad thing when he was attorney general of Connecticut that – corporations knew that his watchful eye might turn towards them. And the truth is, I mean, there's even a fairly compelling health argument about all this, that your risk of thrombosis and all kinds of other stuff goes up when you're scrunched into a seat for four hours um, or, or longer. So, you know, I mean, it's not a completely insubstantial issue. Not and at I, all. And no. I like the idea that the airlines have to be worried about this because they should be worried about something. Yeah. And you know, picking up on what we were talking about earlier, Christina, I will say as, as the person on this panel who is who's the tallest, who's six foot four and three quarter inches tall, I will say that this actually is a little bit of a problem. I'm glad somebody's taking somewhat of a look at this. I, again, I don't know if it's going to end up uh, going anywhere in the U.S. Senate, but it's, it's at least worth considering. Uh, Christine Stewart is the uh, editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. Thanks so much, Christine. Thanks, John. And we're glad you're out of the airport finally. It's good to see you once again. Mark Pazniok is Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Thank you, Paz. Your seats are very comfortable. Oh, we try. And Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you, Colin. Please return your tray table to the upright position. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown with Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WNPR is digital editor is Heather Brandon, the executive producer of Where We Live. The pilot of our ship is Katie Tolarski. Thanks to interns Tiana Duquette and Ben Esty. You can continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski, and this is Where We Live. <laughs>